So how many powerful men out there are right now really nervous because Jeffrey Epstein's been arrested in charge? The lead starts right now. He has rubbed elbows with the likes of President Trump and President Clinton and Prince Andrew. And today, the feds charged multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein with running a network for the rape of underage girls. And then there were 23. The Democratic field is about to start shrinking this hour as another candidate shows she is not going anywhere with a powerful fundraising haul. Plus, friendly fire. The president hitting back after the British ambassador is caught privately trashing Trump. Is the special relationship on shaky ground? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with the national lead and a day of reckoning for a wealthy, well-connected, alleged child predator. Jeffrey Epstein today pleading not guilty after federal prosecutors in New York revealed many disturbing details of how the politically connected multimillionaire allegedly operated a sex trafficking ring and sexually abused dozens of underage girls among the evidence presented in court today. The discovery in a safe in Epstein's Upper East Side mansion of CDs containing, quote, nude or partially nude photographs that appear to be of underage girls with handwritten labels describing the CD's contents as young name plus name or girl pics nude. Say the prosecutors of Epstein, he is not reformed, chastened or repentant. He is a continuing danger to the community. The general accusations that the multimillionaire has preyed against girls have swirled around Epstein for years, though he has avoided any serious punishment. Epstein previously avoided similar charges by securing a secret deal for a much lesser offense with prosecutors back in Florida in 2008, led by then-U.S. attorney, now U.S. Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta. The Miami Herald last year detailed how Acosta gave Epstein what they called the, quote, deal of a lifetime, allowing the man connected to both Donald Trump and Bill Clinton to avoid spending the rest of his life in jail for years of preying on vulnerable girls, some allegedly as young as 14, while allegedly getting them to recruit other girls. All the while, he allegedly trafficked the victims for the purposes of rape, sexual abuse by him and others, according to his accusers. But as CNN's Bryn Gingrass reports now, Epstein is now facing the very justice that he has eluded for decades. Multi-millionaire financier Jeffrey Epstein, a registered sex offender, in court for the first time this afternoon, wearing a Navy prison jumpsuit and pleading not guilty to two sex trafficking charges. Jeffrey Epstein. The U.S. attorney in New York saying from 2002 to 2005, Epstein ran a sex trafficking enterprise, luring dozens of girls, some as young as 14, to his New York City and Palm Beach, Florida homes. He would pay them hundreds of dollars to give him massages, and then the physical contact would escalate into sex acts, according to the 14-page indictment. Epstein would allegedly pay even more money for the girls to recruit other possible victims. This allowed Epstein to create an ever-expanding web of new victims. As alleged, Epstein was well aware that many of his victims were minors. Authorities also say FBI agents found pictures of young-looking girls in Epstein's Manhattan mansion, using the worth of that home and Epstein's overall wealth as an argument to keep him behind bars. When you have uh, two planes and you live much of the year abroad, uh, you know, we think that's a very real risk. The 66-year-old made his money on Wall Street. 
For decades, Epstein handled investments for former high-profile clients like Leslie Wexner, who owns Victoria's Secret. His Rolodex of friends also includes Britain's Prince Andrew, former President Bill Clinton, and President Donald Trump, who in 2002 told New York Magazine this about Epstein. I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. And that's not Epstein's only connection with the current White House. Epstein invaded federal sex charges more than a decade ago, similar to the ones he faces now. The U.S. attorney in Florida back then was Alexander Acosta, Trump's current labor secretary. Acosta cut Epstein a plea deal on lesser state charges, which sent him to prison for only a little more than a year, and he registered as a sex offender. I really don't know too much about it. I know he's done a great job as labor secretary, and uh, that seems like a long time ago, but I know he's, he's been a fantastic labor secretary. Epstein's lawyers calling the new charges a, quote, do-over of the Florida investigation, which is now being looked into by the Justice Department. Berman said the agreement made in Florida has no bearing on the new charges. That agreement only binds, by its terms, only binds the Southern District of Florida. The Southern District of New York is not bound by that agreement and is not a signatory to that agreement. And Epstein will remain behind bars at least until his bail hearing scheduled for next week. And when U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman mentioned this case, he mentioned the victims. He said they deserve their day in court. Well, Jake, I can tell you that the U.S. Attorney's Office says in the last 36 hours they fielded even more calls from potential victims and attorneys. Jake. All right, Bridget Grass, thank you so much. Joining me now is former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams. Uh, Elliot, you heard the defense attorneys for Epstein calling this indictment a, quote, do-over of the, quote, very stuff that was investigated by the feds in Florida. So explain, is there a double jeopardy issue here? How can the Southern District of New York charge Epstein if he reached a non-prosecution deal with different federal prosecutors in Florida? Well, the New York prosecutors were very, if you read the indictment carefully, they were very careful in the facts they alleged. They laid out conduct that happened in New York and they charged sex trafficking there and a conspiracy that touched conduct in Florida, which will pull in evidence of the past conduct. So they were actually very careful in trying to insulate themselves against this very charge. You could have anticipated that they would have made this do-over argument, but it's actually quite a weak one because prosecutors' offices, when they strike these agreements, quite often often make clear that uh, you know future or other prosecutors' offices can still bring other charges. They don't preclude other offices from doing so. So this is a man accused of, of horrible, unconscionable crimes against dozens of young girls. Are you surprised that this specific case is, as of now, just one charge of trafficking and one charge of conspiracy to traffic? Well, again, future uh, uh, charges can be brought. We know that there were uh, photographs and other evidence seized today, and we also don't know what else was found in his house today. Certainly, the prosecutors and the FBI knew that they had uh, probable cause believe there was actionable evidence in his house. So who knows what comes of that? Often that initial indictment is just one charge. And I want to be clear, this is one charge, uh, you know, if it's those, frankly, the two charges, which carries, I think, up to a 45-year maximum. Uh, So he could potentially still be looking at a tremendous amount of time in prison. But again, more charges could still be added. More people could still be charged. So we'll just have to wait and see what else comes from that search warrant. Well, the FBI, as you you noted, they they urged any other potential victims to call them. The U.S. Attorney's Office say they have been contacted uh, by people who allege they've been victims of Epstein Uh, just in the last day and a half or so. Is that common to announce charges like this and then ask for the public's help 
and then you build even more charges? It's cert- it's, <laughs> this isn't a very common case. You just don't see circumstances where someone, uh, where the, egregi- the conduct is so egregious, but the deal is so sweetheart, which you know, sort of seems to stem from his high-profile high status in society or whatever. So that's not very common, but again, uh, this case isn't very common. So we'll, again, we'll just have to see how it plays out. All right, Ellie, thank you so much. Let's chew over all this uh, with our panel right here. Now, the New York Times has reported that Bill Clinton uh, rode on Epstein's plane dozens of times and reportedly visited Epstein's private island. Uh, Christine Pelosi, one of the daughters of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi, tweeted, quote, it is quite likely that some of our faves are implicated. She, she urged the people to, to support the case no matter where's, where it goes. Um, is there serious concern that there will be politicians that, whose names we know uh, that will that will emerge in, in this case? Well, I mean, in Bill Clinton's case, it's already emerged because he's on the flight manifest, the actual written flight manifest that came out a few years ago. So his his role, what we don't know what the role was, but it absolutely <laughs> is possible. And, um, you know, it, it as um, Christine Pelosi said, it, it, this isn't one of these things. It's important not to take political sides on this. These are young girls who are essentially thrown away by Florida prosecutors uh, or federal prosecutors a couple of years ago when they gave him that sweetheart deal. Do you think Acosta's in trouble? It's hard to tell. The president seems to still show support for him. We've heard the president. We asked him a couple of questions yesterday on the tarmac in New Jersey about this. And he basically is taking a hands off approach, saying, I know nothing about this. This was a long time ago. But when it comes to members of Congress and people who have the power to sort of investigate this and show some oversight, it does seem like uh, Acosta will be on the hot seat because his role in this case, you know, almost a decade ago, looks much worse now that we have new federal prosecutors coming in and behind him and seeming to kind of clean up after him and doing what he was not able to do in Florida. And the conduct that is described in these indictments is pretty uh, outrageous. And it's some of the same conduct that uh, that Mr. Acosta was dealing with back in 2008. So he's going to be under a lot of pressure from Congress in, in this front. And of course, there's the horrible quote from, in retrospect, the horrible quote from uh, Donald Trump back in 2002, saying that, uh, that Epstein likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. Of yeah. course, he said that in 2002 before there were any charges known. But it suggests that he knows something's kind of sketchy about him. I, so, I, I mean, maybe he could say he didn't know that they were quite this young, but, you know, I don't know. What he, what he was referencing, I'll leave it to him to tell us what he was referencing in that in that quote. Um, and it's the same thing with Bill Clinton. I think Bill Clinton will will probably come back and say, "Well, I had no idea. I was just friends with him, and I just flew on a plane with him twelve times." Um, and I, I think or, was it twenty six times? Okay, yeah, so twenty six times. So it's a little unbelievable, and that you wouldn't be aware of this. And I think it's something that was. I mean, I wouldn't quite call it an open secret, but it certainly there was a lot of questions around Jeffrey Epstein and, and what he was doing. And so I think that um, and you certainly know that there was a case against him at one point. Wouldn't that raise some questions when you want to ask some questions about it? Yeah, I mean, I'm learning slowly just when I think that politics can't get any more cartoonishly disgusting to just just up the ante a little bit. Just expect that it will get worse. Um, but look, there is a political element to this, which is that, yes, for years, it was somewhat, this uh, plea deal was something of an outrage on the right and sort of on the, in the online community because of this connection to Bill Clinton. And now that it's emerged that Acosta, we knew it was Acosta at the time, but because he's now tied to the Trump administration, it will be interesting to see who flips, uh, as Christine Pelosi suggests we should not, and we shouldn't, flips their allegiances and, and who they think should get in trouble over this, because now that he has some connection to Trump. But it's just mind-blowing. I'm sure we all agree. Get them all. Doesn't matter if, yeah. if they did something wrong, Democrat, Republican, whatever, vegetarian, 
get, get them all. Then there were 23. Changes underway in the 2020 Democratic field as one candidate drops out and another one is touting a big new fundraising hall, plus a live look at Newark Liberty Airport in New Jersey, where the U.S. Women's World Cup champions are due back any moment. We'll show that to you. Stay with us. We're following two breaking political stories in our 2020 lead. Just moments ago, Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California became the first Democratic presidential candidate to drop out of the race since it seriously began. He announced his White House bid exactly three months ago, but Swalwell failed to gain traction in a very crowded Democratic field. The last CNN national poll showed Swalwell supported less than 1%. Swalwell addressed the end of his campaign just moments ago. Today ends our presidential campaign, but it is the beginning of an opportunity in Congress with a new perspective shaped by the lives that have touched mine and our campaign throughout these last three months to bring that promise of America to all Americans. Congressman also said he's not ready to make an endorsement in the 2020 race. Also this afternoon, Senator Elizabeth Warren announced a huge fundraising haul, $19.1 million raised in the second quarter. That's more than Senators Bernie Sanders or Kamala Harris raised in the same time period, but less than South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg or former Vice President Joe Biden. Let's uh, talk about it. Tulu, let me start with you. Uh, Senator Warren's fundraising numbers. Um, one of the things that's so striking about it is that she uh, has not been holding these big dollar fundraisers. And she talks a lot about that on the campaign trail. And yet she's she's up there with those who do. Yeah, she had a really good quarter, not just on the fundraising side, but also just sort of the energy uh, during the first quarter. There were a lot of people writing her off saying that the whole Native America spat and the fact that she had built this huge campaign in terms of hiring a bunch of staff and not really being able to raise a lot of money. She started out putting out these plans and having her slogan, I've got a plan for that. And it really seemed to catch fire. And now we're seeing that it's caught fire among the small donor community as well. The average donation was about $28. And that is something that she can use to power her campaign for months to come because she can keep going back to that well, keep going back to those donors and asking for $25 here, $50 here. And it seems like she is really vaulting into the very top tier of the candidates that are out there. You know, it's also interesting. We haven't seen her go negative on the other candidates like we have other can- like we have other candidates. I mean, she did benefit by being in that debate and being kind of the tallest person and the most well-known in the room. But while Kamala Harris clearly got a bump for going after Joe Biden, Warren seems to have just by the merits of her arguments has attracted some of these uh, these small donors and built herself up without tearing anyone down. That said, it's early. It's totally going to happen. It's early. Yeah. But but even when asked about Bernie Sanders, who does seem to be her main competitor in the liberal lane, in the progressive lane, uh, she has been. I love Bernie. He's great. I love traveling with him, blah, blah, blah. But but she's really giving him a run for the money. She's exceeded him in fundraising this quarter and also uh, in some polls. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you pointed out, because she's not taking money from major donors and isn't doing, you know, private events, that makes this all the more meaningful because it's much easier if, if you're doing that. So I think that um, it's, you know, it's extreme. It says a lot about where she is. I mean, and I and I think she is obviously connecting with people through being very substantive and having policies. And so she's not taking the tack of I'm going to have that kind of moment of getting in a fight with somebody. But she's, you know, showing people that I'm a very substantive person and I've thought about these issues a lot. And I think that her campaign thinks that in the long run that that's going to that's going to help them. But I think that Voters also want to see, are you going to be able to go up against somebody like Mm. Donald Trump? You know, and are you going to be able to, uh, you know, get down and dirty with him? I guess is probably what a lot of people are assuming is going to happen. And they look at the situation where, 
you know, with a Pocahontas thing and feel like she got kind of pulled into that. Yeah. So it doesn't mean it. I mean, it's obviously something she can overcome, but I think those are sort of the things that she has to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say these are the salad days for Elizabeth yeah. Warren. It's only going to get tougher for her, especially if she becomes a nominee. Yeah. I mean, she's not my ideological cup of tea, but I thought in the uh, in the debate, she looked in command. She looked the part. Uh, and people, I think some people are looking for a fresher version of Bernie, like a, the, some of the same policies, but look a little more uh, modern, or shall we say? <laughs> um, but on the Swalwell point, I do want to say, like some of these guys who are who are on the lower ends, they're they're trying to sort of make boutique campaigns. Governor Inslee, I think, has done an effective job on climate change. Swalwell sort of attempted to on guns, but didn't go all in. And I think if you don't do that on one of these ends of the spectrum, uh, you're not gonna you're gonna not gonna get much play. I'm also enjoying the idea of all of these guys shopping around their. Um, their endorsements with all the clout of Jonah yeah. Ryan. Like, <laughs> I love a good I'll think reference. about it. <laughs> I mean, do you think others are, are going to be coming on his heels, other, other withdrawals from the race? I think others should be coming on his heels, but I don't know if they will. I mean, I, obviously it was a good decision for him to drop out. I think that the field needs to narrow down and it needs to be you know, people who are actually serious candidates. And so I think, um, you know, we'll see. I think we'll see what happens with the next debate, probably. Yeah. I think after that, we'll... We'll probably see some people. Being in those out. debates is a big deal. Yeah. I mean, and you, and you can't, if you're, if you're not going to make the debate, especially if we're getting into the second one and the yeah. third one, it, it's kind of it's kind of time. You know, the interesting thing is this new poll from ABC News, Washington Post shows how top 2020 Democrats would fare against President Trump if the general election were held today. Again, it's very early. This is a national poll, et cetera, et cetera. But that said, Joe Biden still has the clear head to head matchup advantage. Uh, against President Trump versus all the other candidates. And one of the main reasons is he beats Trump with moderates and other Democrats don't. And that's the reason he's the front runner right now. It's not that he's had a great performance on the campaign trail. It's not that he's been able to not have gaffes as he has had in the past. But people believe him to be the best option they have for beating President Trump. So that's one of the things that other candidates are trying to sort of chip away at, sort of chip away at his invincibility against Trump. But Mm -hmm. right now, the polls show that he is sort of strong in that position. It's early, but the polls show him very far ahead of Trump in the head-to-head matchup. And as long as he can take that to voters, take that to moderates and say, listen, we can beat President Trump. We're not going to go too far to the left. He's going to continue to have a good calling card for for victory. And I think uh, other candidates are going to try to try to take that on. Senator Kamala Harris is back on the campaign trail and she's courting South Carolina voters this afternoon, hoping to capitalize on her post-debate momentum. But as CNN's Kyung La now reports, the senator faces some criticism that she's struggling to explain to voters what exactly she stands for. Kamala Harris on a campaign swing through South Carolina. And this is a fight we will win. Seeking to sustain her post-debate momentum after her breakout moment taking on frontrunner Joe Biden for his position on school busing and seemingly nostalgic comments about his work with segregationist senators. I was actually very, it was hurtful. This weekend, after three weeks of pressure, Biden relented and addressed those comments. I regret it. And I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception they may have caused anybody. Well, he says he's sorry. I'm going to take him at his word. Hardly a clear victory, though, as Harris was pressed in the aftermath of the first debate to explain her own position on federally mandated busing. Busing is a tool among many that should be considered 
when we um, address the issue. Those comments appeared to be at odds with her stance in the debate, in which she seemed to suggest federally mandated busing was needed in the 1970s, leading her to clarify the next day that, that she does not support such a mandate in 2019. I've been very clear about where I stand on busing. There's been no ambiguity whatsoever. Harris also had to clarify on health care. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Changing her answer the next day, saying she misinterpreted the question. So the question was, would you be willing to give up your private insurance? That's not how it was um, asked. For such a plan. And, and That's what you heard, right? Okay. Yeah, that's certainly what I heard. And um, in terms of, I am supportive of Medicare for all. Biden pointing to their differences on health care to open a new line of attack on Harris. I believe what we should do, we have to improve Obamacare and add a public option, not throw it out. A number of the folks that I'm running want to get rid of it. For some South Carolina voters, Harris's approach is not a deal breaker yet. Is that clarifying? Does that hurt her in your eyes? I do hope as we continue to move forward, there would be less of having to clarify. Now, Harris has not brought up Biden unless she's asked by reporters on the trail. Reporters have also asked her about her second quarter fundraising number that is under $12 million. She said of that, Jake, quote, steady as she goes. Jake. All right. Kyung La with the Kamala Harris campaign in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Thanks so much. The next Democratic presidential primary debate is right here on CNN on July 30th and 31st. My colleagues Dan Abash and Don Lemon will be joining me live in Detroit, Michigan. We'll be moderating both nights. Coming up, President Trump now says he will not work with the representative of one of America's closest allies. That escalated quickly. Plus, a live look at Newark Airport in New Jersey, where the red carpet is out for the U.S. women's soccer team. They're touching down soon after their World Cup win. Stay with us. Our world lead now, President Trump, saying moments ago that the United States government will no longer deal with the British ambassador to the U.S., Kim Derrick, after Derrick described President Trump as, quote, inept and insecure in private diplomatic memos that had been leaked to the Daily Mail. Mr. Trump tweeting, quote, I do not know the ambassador, but he is not liked or well thought of within the U.S. We will no longer deal with him. The good news for the wonderful United Kingdom is that they will soon have a new prime minister. Ambassador Derek, who is actually well liked and well thought of, painted a picture of dysfunction inside the Trump administration and the White House and warned that the Trump presidency could end in disgrace. Tulu, let me start with you. Uh, The president just got back from the UK and and had a lovely uh, trip there. But I have to say, did you see anything in these cables that surprised you? I mean, it looked some of them could have been lifted right out of the front page of The New York Times. Yeah, uh, the ambassador basically was reflecting what's happening internally in the White House, which is there is a lot of dysfunction. There's a lot of disarray. There are you do hear different messages from different people within the, the administration. And as an ambassador, he was doing his job and reporting back to his home country, saying, if you're going to deal with this government, this is how you should do it. This is what you should be aware of. And there was nothing really all that surprising in there. Uh, he talked about how the president is thin skinned and I mean, obviously, with the president saying that we'll no longer deal with the ambassador, it's sort of a a reflection of that. Uh, This ambassador is probably on his way out the door because there is going to be a new prime minister in the U.K., but the president sort of used the opportunity to attack the current prime minister in the U.K., Theresa May, saying that she did a bad job with Brexit. So uh, that's probably what this ambassador was trying to deal with and trying to make sure that he was keeping under wraps is sort of figuring out how to deal with the president, deal with this administration without causing the type of blow up that we've seen from these leaks. 
Well, I thought one of the interesting things, he said that, you know, the president did have this. He was dazzled by his trip to the U.K., but he warned that that doesn't mean he's not going to flip and turn against them on some major issue in the future, which is kind of reflects what a lot of the our closest the U.S.'s closest allies have been dealing with, is that they can't trust that this president is going to back them on you know, major issues, whereas in, and instead, you know, align himself with maybe countries that aren't as friendly. Mary Catherine, according to the Daily Mail, Derek wrote in one memo, quote, we don't really believe this administration is going to become substantially more normal, less dysfunctional, less unpredictable, less faction-riven, less diplomatically clumsy and inept. Surprising to you? No, I don't think most of it is very surprising. Uh, and <laughs> look, Theresa May's got to be like, sure, this is what I needed right now. <laughs> um, and look, the irony is, of course, that he was trying to prevent this sort of international blow up. The other fact is that because it's the Trump administration, we will likely move on. They'll have a new prime minister. They'll have a new ambassador. And we will all forget about this within like seven days. Right. Eh, no, absolutely. That's, that's yeah. generous. Well, you know, I, I'm trying. <laughs> Derek also had a, a nice turn of phrase. He, he, he went talking about Trump's ability to weather controversy, as you're talking about, and just move on to the next. He that's compared one way of putting him it. to Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end uh, of The Terminator, battered but intact at the end of the film. Uh, yeah. Not a bad comparison. No, I think you should hire, we should hire him as a political analyst. <laughs> I mean, he seems very astute. He was basically describing reality. So it's not surprising, that said, that, you know, even if he wasn't leaving, I don't think it would actually be unreasonable for the Trump administration to be upset. I mean, no one's going to see that whether, you know, it's true and like it. They, they, want, to, they want to, you know, feel like there's somebody there that they can deal with who's maybe not, you know, sitting in judgment of them and, um, and writing these kinds of memos. What would be the right reaction just to, for the president just to ignore it? I mean, probably yes, because the problem will sort of fix itself in a bit. And we're all acknowledging that this is stuff that many people say, many people are saying about <laughs> President Trump. Well, Republicans, so, too. Right, I mean, you, you could you, you hear could, this all the time from Republicans on Capitol Hill. Yes, you could just leave it alone, but he will not leave it alone. I, right. do, I do think the leaking of cables in general can be problematic for these relationships. And yeah. Be, yeah. It certainly was after, uh, after WikiLeaks. Either Absolutely. this prime minister or the next. So. Yeah. The U.S. women's soccer team about to arrive back in America after winning the World Cup. But will they ultimately get invited to the White House? Stay with us. In our politics lead today, the Trump administration is continuing to downplay the appalling conditions inside some migrant detention centers after a New York Times report gave some of the most horrifying details to date. Reports of scabies and shingles outbreaks, children left hungry with nowhere to sleep, nowhere to clean themselves, according to current and former Border Patrol agents and visitors. Acting DHS Chief Kevin McAleenan calls the claims unsubstantiated. And as CNN's Abby Phillip now reports, the president is going so far as to say the people in these centers are actually very happy and better off than before. President Trump doubling down on two of the most controversial issues of his presidency, conditions at migrant detention centers. I've seen some of those places and they are run beautifully. They're clean. They're good. And his push to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. We're asking everything except, are you a citizen of the United States? How ridiculous is that? Trump Sunday claiming that conditions at the U.S. border detention facilities are actually better than the places migrants came from. Those are people that are very happy with what's going on because, relatively speaking, they're in much better shape right now. Trump's comments in sharp contrast with the facts on the ground. 
The New York Times describing squalid conditions at one facility in Clint, Texas, saying Border Patrol agents described outbreaks of scabies, shingles, and chickenpox as children sit in cramped cells with clothing so dirty the smell spread to the agents' own clothing. Trump insisting that report is fake and saying he wants reporters to see the facilities themselves. But it is crowded, but we want to have the press go in and see. Reporters have already seen children sleeping under solar blankets and migrants crowded into holding pens. The border situation, just one key immigration-related issue for the Trump base. The other, the ongoing census fight. After a defeat in the Supreme Court, Trump's still pushing his administration to force a citizenship question onto the 2020 census. We are moving forward. We have a couple of avenues, and our attorney general is doing a fantastic job in many ways, and I think he's got it under control. But one senior Trump official says everything is up in the air as the administration scrambles to determine if an executive order would even pass muster with the courts. I think over the next day or two, you'll see what approach we're taking. I think uh, it, it does provide a pathway for getting the question on the census. And in addition to commenting on the census, Bill Barr also commented on former special counsel Robert Mueller's impending testimony before the Senate, uh, the House, uh, the House of Democrats. Uh, Barr called that disappointing. He said the Democrats are trying to create some kind of public spectacle. That testimony is scheduled to happen next week, Jake. All right, Abby Phillip at the White House for us. Thanks so much. In the past, President Trump has called climate change a, quote, Chinese hoax, which, of course, it is not. Now he just spoke about his environmental record, and we're going to fact-check his claims. That's next. In our Earth Matters series, we're zeroing in on President Trump's claims just made moments ago on what he calls his environmental leadership, touting his administration for improving the quality of air and water in the U.S. That would be despite pulling out, the, pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement and rolling back power plant regulations and weakening fuel standards in the U.S. auto industry. Let's bring in CNN's Daniel Dale to fact-check the president. Of course, uh, Bill Weir, CNN's climate correspondent. Daniel, uh, first to you, uh, I want to, you to listen to the sound and tell me what you think of it. Remember, management. It's called forest management. So it's a very important term. When I went to California, they sort of scoffed at me for the first two weeks and maybe three weeks and not so much four weeks. And <laughs> after about five weeks, they said, you know, he's right. He's right. So what's he talking about? So he's talking about the time when he was claiming that climate change was not the driver of California's wildfires. Rather, it was forest management. It was that they were not doing a good enough job raking leaves, uh, cleaning up the floor of the forest. And that was the big issue. And so this claim he made today is revisionist history. California was not scoffing at the idea that forest management was part of the problem. Pretty much everyone agrees that it is. But they were also saying that climate change is also a significant part of the problem. They were saying that the two fires that were happening when Trump was making this claim, the Camp and Woolsey fires, did not even start in forests. Uh, they were also pointing out that the federal government, not California, manages more than half of California's forests. So they were rejecting the blame he was placing on them. So this, this kind of uh, this story that he's telling today, they laughed at me at first and then they said I was right, is, is not what happened, Jake. <laughs> Interesting. Bill, the president uh, used to say, wrongly, that the U.S. had the cleanest air and water in the world. He's now changed his language on that in recent weeks. Yeah, maybe the facts caught up with him, uh, Jake. They have sort of modified that claim. The numbers we can put up here is show that we don't uh, come anywhere close to the top of the world when it comes to these things. T tenth in air quality, 
uh, Water Sanitation 29th drinking water. He was careful to say, unlike uh, Vice President Pence, who tried to, I guess, claim to you that all water was clean, number one there. Uh, but, you know, lost in all of this is he's, he's touting the claims that are only made possible by Richard Nixon and every president since. The Clean Water and Air Acts, the EPA, that really did a great job of, of making the air in Los Angeles not, uh, you know, tasteable anymore. You can now see the mountains or, you know, the Cuyahoga River isn't on fire anymore. But saying that we're now going to gut that entire agency is like saying there's been a 74 percent reduction in house fires over the last, uh, you know, generation. But we're going to fire the firemen and, uh, and put taxes on hoses and take away regulations on smoke alarms. And we think it's somehow going to get better. Daniel, the, the president also put a price tag on the Green New Deal that's been popular among many progressives. Take a listen. Their plan is estimated to cost our economy nearly $100 trillion, a number unthinkable, a number not affordable even in the best of times. If you go 150 years from now and we've had great success, that's not a number that's even uh, thought to be affordable. $100 trillion, Daniel? So, Jake, we know that the president makes up a lot of numbers. This is not a number he made up out of thin air. This is a number that comes from a conservative group, the American Action Forum, which put a price tag on the Green New Deal of $93 trillion. I think it's important to note the source of the figure, and it's also important to note how they got it. What they did was make a number of assumptions and estimates that we have no idea will come true. For example, they assumed that there would be a $36 trillion cost from the U.S. implementing a single-payer health care plan like Bernie Sanders wants as part of the Green New Deal. We have no idea if Bernie Sanders will be president. We have no idea if this is how Green New Deal proponents will try to achieve the goal of universal health care. So there are a lot of assumptions here. Or at least it's based on a number There's something. that exists somewhere. Yes. <laughs> steps. Bill, you're out there talking every day to people uh, about climate change, the effects of it. Do, do Americans have confidence in how President Trump is handling environmental issues and climate change? Not really. I mean, that's that that topic. He gets his highest disapproval numbers. It's two to one uh, disapproved to approve on that. But it's really like politics. Uh, climate change is local. And as you go on a road trip across America, it's like a road trip through the five stages of grief. There's a lot of denial spots. You get to places like Miami where there's bargaining. But what struck me today is he brought up a, an owner of a bait shop in Florida uh, who saw firsthand the devastation of red tide, which is caused by pollutants flowing down Lake Okeechobee and into the Gulf there. And it's charged, supercharged uh, this bacteria and it's caused, you know, exacerbated by climate change, which makes me think he's got Republicans at Mar-a-Lago or they're seeing internal numbers, polling numbers that Republicans in Florida really care about the climate because it is nonpartisan there. And the same in Alaska, where it was hotter in Anchorage than Key West on the July 4th of July. At some point, you can no longer deny it, despite your party loyalty. All right, Bill Weir and Daniel Dale, thank you so much for the fact-checking. Appreciate it. A live look now at the U.S. women's soccer team touching down in U.S. soil and bringing home a World Cup trophy. But the team's fight is not quite over. That story next. We have some breaking news in the sports lead. The superlative World Cup Soccer champions are back in U.S. soil. The plane carrying the U.S. women's team just touched down at Newark Liberty International Airport moments ago. The celebrations are just getting started. There's the big parade set for Wednesday, an invitation for the team to visit Congress in Washington. But as CNN's Diane Gallagher now reports, President Trump has yet to formally invite the team to the White House. Or was that invitation by tweet supposed to be enough? The back-to-back -back World Cup champions returning home as heroes. 
But as they celebrate a record fourth cup win, the U.S. women's national team is focused on a bigger opponent, getting paid the same as male athletes. Echoing through the sold-out stadium Sunday, chants of USA switched to equal pay. Equal pay! Equal pay! Equal pay! Definitely heard that as we were kind of lining up. I think we have a case no matter what. Um, obviously, we brought the lawsuit, but... This just, you know, sort of blows it out of the water. It's like, is it even about that anymore? Is it just kind of about doing the right thing? Mediation expected to start soon in a lawsuit filed in March by members of the 2015 World Cup winning team claiming gender discrimination by the U.S. Soccer Federation. Complaints go far beyond pay equity, ranging from quality of training, travel and promotion provided versus what the U.S. national men's team receives. President Trump, who has publicly sparred with co-captain Megan Rapinoe after she said in June that if they won, she would not be going, quote, to the bleeping White House, did congratulate the team on Twitter, but isn't ready to support their fight for fair pay. In terms of revenue, between 2016 and 2018, the U.S. women's team generated more than the men, according to the Wall Street Journal. And that's all before this financially record-setting World Cup win. And despite having previously said the team would be invited to the White House, whether they won or not, the president now says he's mulling it over. Will you invite the women's team to the White House, the soccer team? We haven't really thought about it. We will look at that. And so really, Jake, the question is also, if he does invite the women to the White House, will they go? And we can't really answer that at this point. There is no shortage of invitations, though. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says that she has already extended a bipartisan invitation for them to visit the U.S. Capitol. And again, they have come from just about everybody at this point. They are being heralded as they should be. This, they're the four-time World Cup champions, Jake, something that has not been done. Again, we're waiting for them to kind of come off the plane here back on U.S. soil. Uh, they will be celebrated, Jake on uh, Wednesday with that ticker tape parade in New York. It was quite a game. Diane Gallagher, thank you so much. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash Country. Max subscription required.